Good morning and welcome again to One Ancient Hope, if you're here with us in person. If you are joining us online, particularly if you're a guest, if this is your first time um, streaming our service, we are glad to have you with us in spirit and in technology. This is our fourth and final week of our Advent series um, that we have been calling Like Trees in Winter. And in this series, we've looked at the three losses that we undergo from the collective trauma of the pandemic. We talked about the loss of hope, the loss of connection, the loss of a sense of agency, and the fourth is a loss of a sense of safety. Elizabeth Pennock, she says, trauma rips away the assumption that the world is basically a predictable, safe, and understandable place. Without a basic sense of safety, it is difficult to find rest for our bodies or our souls. And a lot of us, aware of it or not, are going to experience the impact of this long-term state of vigilance, of constantly looking ahead to the next threat. It's exhausting and it feels like anything but peace. But in week four of Advent, we're getting closer. We're five days away from the celebration of Christmas, from a hope that you can touch, a hope you can hold in a swaddled blanket. And we're getting closer to a shadow of this hope also in the pandemic. There's two separate vaccines approved now. And slowly but surely, people are getting them. One of the first nurses to get the vaccine in New Jersey, she was talking about how much relief she felt. Knowing that she could soon walk into a room without that heavy cloud of fear hovering over her, she said. Now, the waiting isn't over yet, but now there's this glimmer of light, like four small candles flickering at the end of a long, dark tunnel. And John the Baptist's birth is like those four candles sort of delicately dancing in the dark. Now, John's birth comes to us six months before Jesus is. And both John and Jesus were born under King Herod. Herod the Great, as he's known. Now, if you're ever asked, which is the one figure from the ancient world whom we have more primary evidence from original sources than anyone else in the world? The answer, unlike Sunday school, is not Jesus. It is not St. Paul. It's not Caesar Augustus. It's not Julius Caesar. It's not Alexander the Great. No, it's actually Herod the Great. It's this king. Josephus, the historian, he wrote like these two whole volumes about the guy. And that's more than anyone else. Now, Herod the Great was this remarkably successful politician. He kept the peace. 
between Jerusalem and Rome. And Rome, of course, had conquered Judea ever since 63 BC. And so Herod acted as a Roman governor overseas. It's called like a client king, which Rome did very often because they would have conquered a province, but they didn't want to send sort of their own people, their own governor out. So if there was a local king who was doing a good enough job, then they'd say, okay, we'll call you a king, but you're definitely going to be deferent to Rome. Like Rome is still in charge. They're the one who your whole administration has power under. Now, politically speaking, he deserved that title, Herod the Great. So he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He created a port city called Caesarea within 12 years, and it became like the best port in the Holy Land. He facelifts all of Jerusalem. The buildings are redone. The, the, the mason work like we're having done here all gets redone under him. He builds himself a gorgeous palace. He had a hippodrome, like a stadium, and theaters built. He also had these seven great fortresses built throughout the land of Judea so that they could keep the peace if anyone was going to attack them. He kept the peace with both Jerusalem and Rome. He was also great. He married. He had ten Wives. And each of them birthed a son. Now, as much as you might rejoice over a son to carry on your lineage, when each of your ten wives births a son, this creates some conflict in your family because they're all gunning for their dad's position, basically. They want to be next in line. And so Josephus, the historian, he tells us about what was going on between the brothers. He says there was attempted poisonings between them. They're all fighting because they want to end up as the next ruler. Well, this rattled Herod, as it would probably rattle any father. And so he decides to have three of them, three of his sons, put to death on suspicion of treason. And then, for other reasons, he he puts to death actually his favorite wife of the ten of them. Her name was Miriam. She was a Hasmonean Maccabean princess, which I'm sure means a lot to all of you. And he put her to death, and then his mother, her mother, his mother-in-law, was causing issues, so he puts her to death. And then the high priest is looking into this. So he invites the high priest down to Jericho. It's, it's southern, it's warmer, it's nice. And they decide to play a version of water polo. And as things are getting, of course, more heated, Oh, no. Unfortunately, the high priest drowns in the game of water polo. Herod the Great goes on to kill several of his uncles, some of his cousins. So he's famous in the Roman Empire for keeping peace between Jerusalem and Rome. But he clearly couldn't keep the peace at home. Caesar Augustus, who was the reigning Caesar at the time, he famously said, I'd rather be his pig than his son. And this was very clever of Augustus because pig in the Greek is H-U-S, let's say hus, and son is H-U-I-O-S, 
Huyos. So he's doing this play on words. And of course, pigs aren't slaughtered in Judea because they're Jews. So it's, it's like, I'd rather be his pig than his son. His sons get slaughtered. Now, when Herod was dying, he was becoming more and more paranoid. He was ruled by fear, and he had this void of really any internal peace. He invites his sister, Salome, in, and he says, I want you to arrest all of the Jewish leaders in the land and imprison them in the Hippodrome just below the palace here. Now, the Hippodrome has, has been discovered archaeologically, by the way. So she does, and then she says, Brother, why am I doing this? And Herod says, Well, I know that when I die, the Jews are going to rejoice because they don't really like me. So I want to give them something to cry about. He wants these leaders all executed in the Hippodrome so that there will be thousands of thousands weeping at the time that Herod the Great dies. His lack of internal peace, it it emanates outward in violence, coercion, and desperate attempts at maintaining control. In fact, in a story more familiar to us in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn about Herod sending the Magi down to Bethlehem to sort of investigate and find out where is this Jesus that they're talking about who's supposed to be Christ the King. See, he poses a threat to power. And then when the Magi don't return, Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. It's this sort of tragic undertone to the Christmas story that's always easier to brush over. Again, Panic says, trauma rips away the assumption that the world is basically a predictable, safe, and understandable place. And without a basic sense of safety, it's difficult to find rest for our bodies or our souls. And this is the traumatic atmosphere that John the Baptist and months later, Jesus the Messiah is born into. Into this atmosphere where there is a loss of a sense of safety, what kind of peace does John the Baptist offer us? So when you open up a new Word or Pages document on your computer and it's sort of sitting there blank on the screen, except for up in that left-hand corner, There's a a dash, a line, sort of blinking. Something is soon to be written, right? John the Baptist is that line. Something is coming. A word is coming. Or maybe you're, you're single. I don't know if all phones do this, but at least I know on the iPhone they do. Let's say you're single, you have an iPhone. You send out a text message to someone you have a crush on, and you don't get a response. That night. So the next day, you're staring at your phone, and then a little bubble pops up with an ellipsis. Dot, dot, dot. Something is coming. John the Baptist is that ellipsis. 
a word is about to be spoken. He's the last. John the Baptist is sort of this straddler. He's the last of Israel's prophets, but he's also the first one to sort of confess Jesus as Savior. In fact, he does it in utero, which we read about last week. He leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. And so he straddles the old and the new. And he prepares the way for Jesus, it says, in a whole bunch of different ways. And the image I think about is someone like with a machete in the bush or perhaps in the rainforest, just clearing away, chopping away at it. Or in a metaphor that may be more familiar for us, I think of the road filled with three feet of snow and John the Baptist is driving the plow. He's making a way for something to be possible. He's clearing the path. The end of John's father's prophetic song, Zechariah's song, says in verses 76 through 79, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. John prepares a way, a path of peace by making space. So what John offers us is actually the peace of absence. He offers absence in silence, wilderness, and repentance. First, he offers the peace of absence in silence. And here, this sort of precedes him. We have to think about John's father for a moment, Zechariah, which our texts talk about. Zechariah, we learned the first week, was silenced by the angel Gabriel. And then we learned today that it was, he was silenced for the whole, basically 10 months of the pregnancy, up until the baby was circumcised. That's a, a lot of time to not be able to speak. Nine full months or more. The whole time that the promise was growing, gestating in Elizabeth, words were absent from the mouth of Zechariah. He had to practice silence. And Gabriel silenced Zechariah when he asked for certainty about the promise of a son. They were old. Elizabeth was barren. So, of course, he doubted the angel. I mean, in light of such a miracle, I think we would all ask, God, how can I be certain of this thing that you're saying? Because it seems foolish and ridiculous. And if I go and tell anyone about this, I'm just going to be the laughingstock of town. How could I be certain? Give me a sign. Anuma Okoro, she asks this. What if the silence God bestowed on Zechariah was not fully punishment, but also an odd blessing? What if God was offering Zechariah nine months to sit with the news, to ponder God's words, 
and to process the stupefied awe in which he surely found himself. What if the time of formal silence was God granting Zechariah the gift of some necessary internal solitude in preparation to receive the miracle and to dwell in God's faithfulness? Have you ever thought of silence as a gift? Because the thing is, when we actually clear our lives of distractions and pause and sit in that space, what usually happens is many surprising and unavoidable feelings and thoughts, they start to surface in our minds and thoughts and hearts even. It's there that we not only hear more of our true selves sort of rising, but we also often hear what God is trying to speak into our lives. And so again, a coro, she says, silence forces us to name our sources of meaning, value, and identity. It creates room for our buried desires, fears, and other emotions to be heard. Once these emotions surface, we can begin the hard work of attending to them and moving towards spiritual, emotional, and mental health. It is no wonder, she says, that we do not run more quickly and enthusiastically towards silent retreats or incorporating spaces of silence into our daily spiritual practices. But, she says, the more we inhabit silence, the better our hearing becomes. When we step back into the noise of our world, our hearing is a bit more fine-tuned and more likely to catch God's whispers. So while Elizabeth was growing John in her womb, God was growing something in Zechariah through his silence. So the moment he writes on that tablet, right, because the friends and family of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're quite demeaning to Elizabeth. They're like, we don't believe you. There's no way that Zechariah would want to name this kid John. So they give Zechariah this writing tablet, which was probably like a big piece of wood covered in uh, wax so he could you know, carve something into it without needing to do too much damage. Well, as soon as Zechariah says, no, you know, name him John, which means, again, God is gracious, his lips sort of burst open, and what comes out immediately is praise. The prophetic song that he sings is something so rich, beautiful, and hopeful that it could only arise out of nine months of silence. The silence changes Zechariah from someone who needs certainty from God into someone the text says is filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming peace to a world that has no certain signs of it besides a baby born of the barren. John offers the peace of absence through silence. Second, he offers the peace of absence in the wilderness. John the Baptist is a strange character. We're told in other gospels that he eats wild locusts with honey. I mean, thank God for the honey to coat those wild locusts, right? He wears clothing made of camel's hair with a leather, leather belt's not that weird, but he wears a leather belt. I guess if it's around camel's hair, it's a little strange. He also took a Nazarite vow, which would mean that he wouldn't cut his hair. 
So you got to imagine a guy eating wild locusts and honey, long hair, super skin and thinny, thinny, <laughs> super skinny and thin from, well, just eating locusts. Um, just very strange. And he, he doesn't go to the temple to preach, by the way. At least not most of the time. He's out in the wilderness, even though we know Zechariah was a priest, so he has priestly lineage. He'd be able to go and preach there, but he wasn't found preaching or praying publicly. He wasn't at the homes of Jewish celebrities, which would have, of course, sort of fast-tracked his message. His spiritual formation was in the wilderness. Coming from a barren womb, he knew what it was like to find hope in barren places. In Matthew 3, it says that John was the one prophesied about in Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John is clearing space in the wilderness and the desert. And get this, it says that people from all over Jerusalem and Judea, they flocked to John. This strange guy with long hair and camel hair, people wanted to hear what he had to say. There was something compelling about this man so shaped by the wilderness. So people traveled to the barren places to hear his message. We all know this as Americans, we live in a culture of excess, right? We are conditioned to think that more is better. Extravagance is fulfilling. John offers the possibility that seasons and spaces of austerity can redirect our focus to the things of God. If we choose to take advantage of such opportunities, the wilderness of our time, the barrenness of life in quarantine, the imposed stillness of the desert many of us feel like we're in, what can it offer us? How might we apprehend peace more fully in the painfully empty spaces of our lives? John offers the peace of absence in silence and in the wilderness. And third, John offers us the peace of absence through repentance. Matthew chapter three begins in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now I'm a preacher and I don't even like saying the word repent anymore. It's been destroyed by being put up on billboards all over the highway or sort of given over to TV preachers. And I don't know whatever negative light the word repent has taken on for you, whether it's again from those highway billboards or anything else, sort of hellfire preachers, but please let it be reframed in light of its actual meaning. In fact, a lot of biblical scholars, they think that to use the word repent or repentance, it's actually kind of a poor translation sometimes. Many would suggest simply convert or conversion or change your mind for the Greek word. But repentance in this case, there's no doubt about it. It is a word of hope, a word of peace 
into a loss of a sense of safety. Remember, Zechariah prophesies that through John, God will offer salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us in verse 71 and rescue from the hand of our enemies and enable us to serve God without fear in verse 74. John himself says to repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven is near. In the kingdom of God, we no longer need to fear the other kingdoms of this world. God has the final victory. It's in this light that John prepares the way that he makes space through repentance. The word there is metanoia, repentance. Meta, right? We know like metaphysics, something above, beyond. Noia, the mind. It's kind of this idea of changing your mind or something that's got to go beyond the way you're already thinking. So that's, that's sort of the Greek idea of repentance there. But then there's also this Hebrew sense. And that's more of conversion, of turning away from something. And so John Calvin, he kind of combines these two. And he says the meaning of the word involves four aspects. One, withdrawing from ourselves. Two, turning to God. Three, laying aside the old. And four, putting on a new mind. Now, all of that, again, can simply come down to turning towards God, which inevitably means it will be away from something else. And it's in the awayness that the absence begins to exist. It involves leaving something behind. Recognizing the absence of that which you must turn away from. This, I think, is why John baptizes with water. It's sort of the clearest symbolism of something being washed away, of the old way of life being washed away. You, you, he couldn't become more literal in a symbol. So here's a question for you. Are there places of wilderness or deserts in your life? Is there enough space, enough silence to hear the word of God spoken to you? What might you need to repent of, to turn away from, to open up space for more of the peace of God in your life? In all these questions, if God is bringing anything to mind, here's my sort of pastoral prod towards you. Take note of it. And before the end of the day, share it with someone. It's a shame if God is speaking to your heart and perhaps out of convenience or just simply to forget, which we all do. The week goes on as if he said nothing. So if God is speaking something, share it with someone. Let it become actualized in your life in that way. Now, it's not lost on me that in talking about peace, <laughs> what I offered you, what I think John offers is silence, wilderness, and repentance. That's a hard sell. Look, I wish I had five steps towards a more peaceful life that I could just give you. And then you'd leave here feeling more buoyant, 
and filled with peace. But I'm well aware that that's not in my capability to do. John offers us the peace of absence. However, Jesus offers us the peace of presence. So there's two solstice days each year, right? There's the longest day, the summer solstice, filled with sunlight, usually around the end of June. And then, of course, there's the winter solstice. The shortest day of the year usually falls pretty close to December 24th, 25th, somewhere within there. Now, what's interesting is that the church has traditionally celebrated the Feast of John the Baptist on June 24th because it lined up the most with the summer solstice. So that's the Feast of the Birth of John the Baptist. Now, you probably know when the Feast of the Birth of Jesus Christ is, December 25th. That's not his actual birthday, but it is the day that often falls closest to the winter solstice. You following me? If you are, you might be confused. Doesn't this seem backwards? Why does John the Baptist get the most sunlight, the most light of the whole year? And Jesus gets the least. Why does John get the long day and Jesus the short day? When the Gospel of John, John the Baptist is talking to his disciples, and one of them comes to him upset because all of a sudden Jesus has more followers than John. Jesus is the new guy in town, and John's disciples are one by one sort of falling away. And so the disciple comes and says, aren't you upset about this? And John says, no, 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 no. I'm like the groomsmen. I'm excited when the groom is at the center. I'm excited when the groom gets all of the glory of that day. Like any good groomsman would be. If you're married and your groomsman was not like that, you should have picked a better groomsman. John says, that now that Jesus' ministry has begun, John's joy is complete. In fact, he says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. So the church then chose the day in the summer as John's feast because that day marks the day of the daylight decreasing from then on. Christ's birthday is on the winter solstice because from then on out, the light increases. John must decrease so Christ can increase. So now the whole sort of cosmos points to that reality that Christ is now increasing. So as the days lengthen after Christmas, remember that more and more. Just pray, Lord, more and more of you in my life. May my life reflect the sunlight. John must decrease so Jesus can increase. John begins the pathway to peace through absence. And what? Jesus fills that absence with the presence of his peace. He fills the decrease with his increase. Jesus says in John 14, I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. So the peace of Jesus is not as the world gives. Let's talk about that just for one moment here. It's not the absence that the world gives. It's not about the absence of conflict or anxiety or turning a blind eye to what's actually going on inside you or to what's actually going on in the world around you. Any temptation to create peace by numbing the pain or sadness or discomfort of this season will not be the peace of Christ. This is not the absence that John the Baptist encourages to provide a pathway for the peace of Christ. The peace of Jesus is not the presence that the world gives either. How can we get our mind off COVID spikes, school openings and closings, periodically barren store shelves, the rise and fall of the stock market? Hmm. We could cope pretty quickly if we turn to leisure and amusement. If we fill the absence with Facebook and TikTok and Amazon Prime and Hulu and the Mandalorian and so on, we Netflix and chill. The problem is the chill doesn't last past the end of the show or the end of the series if we've binged. The peace doesn't endure. All we did was fill the absence that John encourages us to create and not with substance. The peace that comes from a bottle of wine, let's say, ends with what? The pain of a headache in the morning, if not worse. The peace that comes from overindulging in Christmas desserts, and I know this one well, ends with a stomach ache or less energy, lethargy tomorrow. The peace that comes from ignoring the scientific community and guidelines about COVID, it just ends with more deaths and longer business shutdowns. The peace that comes from muting the cries of the people of color and minorities in, in our communities, it just ends with protest and violence. It doesn't end with peace just because you can kind of have your own internal peace. You see, there's an absence and a presence to peace. And we get tempted on both ends. Either to create a sort of false absence, a false emptiness of conflict and despair by avoiding or controlling. And then the real absence that exists, that has been created as a grace to us, we seek to fill with the presence of anything but Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus offers us the peace that is his very presence. The peace of the Holy Spirit filling us, teaching us everything he says, and constantly reminding us of Jesus, who he is, what he is doing, and what he has already accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Friends, through the blood of Jesus, we have peace with God. It exists now. You already have it. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. And even when you feel unsafe, do not let your hearts be afraid, says Jesus. When the angel speaks the word of God to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary, I've said this again and again, and we read it again and again. And when he says it to us as well, he says, do not be afraid. The word about to be spoken is one of love, and love casts out all fear. But only Jesus can truly offer the peace that comes from a fearless heart. Herod the Great's heart did not know this peace. And so no matter how well he tried to uphold and promote the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, he ultimately destroyed his own family, and he ended up taking the lives of the most innocent and helpless, those he should have protected. John the Baptist helps us clear space for the Christ, the only true peace. We need John because there needs to be a certain kind of absence within us, a certain emptiness and open space that then can be filled with Emmanuel, with Jesus Christ, the God with us. The call of John the Baptist is to repent, to turn away from the path of sin towards the path of peace. May it be so for all of us. Amen.